0: Now, brothers and sisters, if you will, let's take out our Bibles together turn to the book of Philippians today with me. Philippians chapter 2, we'll start in verse 3 here in just a moment. Philippians 2, if you're not familiar with the way a Bible is laid out, you can grab one of those blue Bibles on the pew in front of you and it'll be on page 1165, 1,165. That's where our text will be, Philippians 2. Our main text, as usual, will not be on the screens behind me, so I would encourage you to look at it in your own copy with us. We'll be reading it here in just a moment and then referring back to it multiple times during the the sermon today. Now, this past week, many of you might have read a version or watched a version of the popular story, A Christmas Carol. Many of us know this. Ebenezer Scrooge, an old curmudgeon of a man, is selfish and incessantly bothered by the joy of Christmas, and he's visited by the ghosts of Christmas, past, present, and future, and they show him some things about himself and about his life and about those closest to him, and eventually he's led to understand that his ways have been wrong, and he changes his view on things and on Christmas. But how odd would it be in that story if after that third ghost, a fourth ghost showed up, and Mr. Scrooge says, Who are you? And that fourth ghost says, "Uh, Mr. Scrooge, I'm Charles Dickens. I made you up in my mind. I I wrote you into this story, and and now I'm here to talk to you myself. I've wrote myself into this story. You see, we're talking about the incarnation of Christ today. An event so unique in the history of the world that the closest thing we have to describe it is if perhaps an author wrote him or herself into their own story. But even then, the analogy falls woefully short. The wonder of Christmas comes from the incarnation. The fact that God became a man. God came to be with us. Emmanuel, God with us. As we quoted last week, and I'll quote again J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God in his chapter on the Incarnation, said nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the Incarnation. And so I want to take you to our text today. Philippians 2 is one of the prime texts in the Bible about the Incarnation of Jesus Christ. We're going to read Philippians 2, verses 3 through 11. I want to reiterate this morning. We do this every week, but what we're about to do right now is of paramount importance and significance. It seems simple because we do it so often, it's so easy to do. But what we're about to do is we're about to listen to the words of God himself. And so with that in mind, let me read God's words through the Apostle Paul, starting in Philippians 2, verse 3. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant point out to you three things in our text that Christ did when he came to this earth. We're going to look at from our text how Christ lowered himself, and then we'll look at how Christ emptied himself, and finally we'll look at how Christ humbled himself. These all come straight from our text. The first begins in verse 6. Christ lowered himself. Let's look at verse 6 one more time. Notice how in verse 6, Jesus lowered himself by, it says, He was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was in the form of God. The New International Version memorably states, he was in very nature God. Just in his very nature, he was God. Jesus, as he walked on this earth, he was God in the flesh, God with us. Jesus wasn't just a man. He wasn't just the greatest man of all men. Of all human beings, he was God in the flesh. We sing that famous Christmas carol, Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And it says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. That's what it's talking about. He was God veiled in humble flesh, human flesh. The incarnate deity. He was deity, God incarnated as a man. We read this in John chapter 1, for instance. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Notice what it says there. He was both with God and he was God. Both of those things were true at the same time. In the beginning, before all things, eternity passed. Today we're talking about the incarnation of Christ. And I say Christ on purpose because before Mary conceived, there was no man named Jesus of Nazareth. Before that, it was Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, You see, as Christians, we believe in the Trinity. We believe in a triune God, one God, and yet three distinct persons in that one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And that second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who was with God in eternity past, was God for all eternity past. It was he that came down and became the man, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, started to exist when Christ, God the Son, took place, took a place in Mary's womb. And so John 1.14 there, right after John 1.1-2 1, 1 that we just read, John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we see that he was God. Jesus, incarnated in the flesh, was God as he walked around. And yet, our text says, verse 6, even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He lowered himself. Even though he was equal with God, he was. But he lived as if he was not. He is God in the flesh, and at the same time, He's our ultimate example of submission to the Father. This is one thing that confuses a lot of people as they read the Bible. We see Jesus and, and we think, okay, this is God in the flesh, and yet we see Jesus as he walks around submitting to God, saying that he, he's only doing his Father's will. He's equal with God, but he's not living like it. He's acting as if equality with God is not a thing that he could even grasped, and yet he is God in the flesh. This is the wonder of the incarnation. In fact, he not only considered God above himself, he considered everyone above himself. Look at verse 3 in our text. Verse 3 is a command to us from God in light of who Jesus is. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. See, Jesus is our ultimate example of this. He walked this earth being the greatest human being that could have ever lived, and yet he put the needs of others ahead of his own. He put the comfort of others ahead of his own. He lowered himself. It's the wonder of the incarnation. Jesus who existed in heaven with all glory and with all dignity from eternity past, lowered himself to become a man. Speaking of Jesus' lowering of himself, R.G. Lee, over a hundred years ago, wrote what I think is the greatest quote I've ever heard outside the Bible on the Incarnation. I'm going to quote it in full to you. R.G. Lee once wrote, Christ... Who in eternity rested motherless upon the father's bosom, and in time rested fatherless upon a woman's bosom, clasping the ancient of days, who had become the infant of days. What deep descent from the heights of glory to the depths of shame, from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth, from exaltation to humiliation, from the throne to the tree, from dignity to debasement, from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the gory place. In Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined, born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty, No room for him who made all rooms. No place for him who made and knows all places. Oh, the deep humiliation of the Creator, born of the creature, woman. But in his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we cannot ascend to him, he descends to us. That last line is so appropriate. It's Christmas. Because we cannot ascend to him, he descends to us. In ourselves, we cannot climb up to God. We cannot work our way up to heaven. And God knows this. And because of that, he descended to us. Christ lowered himself. But our text also says, Christ emptied himself. Look at verse 7. In verse 7 it says, but he emptied himself... In two ways, by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Jesus emptied himself, first by taking the form of a servant. Consider his birth and consider the circumstances. He was born in the lowliest of circumstances, not at, not at all like we would have expected Christ, God in the flesh, to come. He entered into the world In a dirty stable for animals. He was born to a poor family. He grew up in Nazareth, and later in the New Testament, we see that's a place that people used as the butt of jokes. As he walked the earth, he did not take the position of king or ruler, he was not anyone of importance. He was submissive to his parents as his earthly authorities. And the only leadership position he held was a rabbi to a ragtag group of castoffs that he chose himself, the disciples. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, but it also says he emptied himself by being born in the likeness of men. Consider for a moment the willingness... Of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the Word who was with God and was God, consider the fact that he willingly experienced being grown and developed in the womb of a woman. This is astounding for us to think about. That God himself actually condescended to be grown as an embryo inside of the womb of a woman. This is God we're talking about. What in in all of the, the fiction and all of the stories that mankind has ever come up with, all of the religions that we've ever come up with, what in the world is as fascinating and as unexpected as this? Consider that he willingly experienced being born and being an infant and all the humiliation that that entails. This is God we're talking about. All the weakness of human beings, all the dependence upon others He had to depend on people to feed him, to clothe him, to protect him, to soothe him, to wash him up. God condescended to do that, to experience that, to experience what we experience, born in the likeness of human flesh. Hebrews 2 tells us he partook of our flesh and blood. He was made like us in every respect. He suffered when tempted. He even shared in our experience of death. And therefore, therefore, he is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He is able to sympathize with us in our suffering. He is merciful because he understands. There is nothing like this in all the other religions in the history of the world. Jesus emptied himself. Christ, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, emptied himself to become Jesus of Nazareth. But finally, our text says that Christ humbled himself. Look at verse 8. In verse 8, it says, Being found in human form, he humbled himself. How? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. By becoming obedient to the point To the point of death. Do you remember Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? The night he was to be arrested. The night before he would be crucified. He knows what's about to happen. He knows what he's facing. And in that garden, he comes down to pray. He tells his disciples as he goes out to pray, My soul is in agony to the point of death. Watch with me as I pray. He goes to pray. It says he he was so stressed... His sweat was coming off of him, pooling off of him like drops of blood. And as he prays, he goes to the Father and says, Father, if there is any other way. Because he knew. He knew what the cross meant. He knew that he was about to be physically beaten and killed in an extraordinarily excruciating method, crucifixion. But he also knew that to pay for the sins of the world, he was about to take the brunt, the full force of the, the, the wrath of God, poured out full strength on him for the sins of everyone for all time. That would, that, that would just absolutely crush any of us if we understood what that meant. He knew what was about to happen. He was afraid. But how does he end his prayer? Father, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' death was an act of obedience to the Father. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And therefore, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 tells us, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Causes us to think about the garden and that prayer there. And then it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. His death was an obedience to the Father. In fact, his life was a march to his death, if you remember. His entire life was a marching to his death. We celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, but the reason the birth of Jesus is light for a dark world, the reason the birth of Jesus is hope for those who have no hope, the reason this is such good news is because Jesus came to die. He was born so that he could save us, so that he could die. There's a verse printed on the front of your bulletin this morning. Christ Jesus came into the world for what purpose? To save sinners. That's why he came, right? And so his birth is a celebration, but we're looking forward to his death. It's a march toward his death. Ever since he was born, it was, it was a march to the death that he knew would come. Do you remember the wedding at Cana? where he first performed a miracle in public. turned water to wine. Now, no one knew who he was at that point. He had not come out and and revealed himself yet in his his glory or his power. But his mom knew, right? His mom knew. She'd been with with him forever. They ran out of wine, and his mom comes up to him. His mom says, You can help. I know you can help. And Jesus looks at his mother and says, My hour has not yet come. Because Jesus knows... If he does this, if he opens himself up to publicity, if he performs this miracle, he's starting a chain of events that's going to lead to his death. That's what's going to happen. He knows it. And so when he performs that miracle, he's, he's starting that stone rolling down the hill, so to speak. And he says, woman, my, my hour has not yet come. But fast forward to the prayer that he made for his disciples in the upper room. The night before he was crucified, John 17, he begins that prayer saying, Father, the hour has come. The hour had come. John 10, starting in verse 17, says, For this reason, this is Jesus talking, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the father to the point of death. Death on a cross. And therefore it says, verse 9, Therefore, what? God has exalted him. Therefore, God has exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Remember Jesus' words while he walked this earth. He said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Yet again, our ultimate example of this is Jesus. Verse verse 8 there says he humbled himself, and then verse 9 says he was exalted. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted, but it also says whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Notice in our text, when God exalts Jesus, it says it's to to the purpose so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every knee should bow, and not just humans, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. We're talking angels, we're talking demons. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The only question is will you humble yourself and do it now? Or will you be humbled and be forced to do it at the judgment day? Because every knee will bow. Rest assured, bank your life on it. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It doesn't seem like that now. There's plenty of people out in the world that will not confess Jesus as Lord right now. But there will come a day when every single tongue in the history of human life will be made to confess that he was who he said he was. That he was who God said he was. That he is Lord. And that you only come to God through him. And so the question is, will you confess him now? Will you bow the knee to him now, willingly, humbly? Or will you be made to do so when you face him at the judgment day? This is the question that faces every single one of us. Have you bowed the knee to Jesus? Have you confessed Jesus as Lord? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess what will you do? Right now we want to spend some time in prayer. Every week after we hear from God, we give time for all of us to, to speak back to God in silent prayer. And so we're going to give this time right now. We, we, we give a few moments right here because every single one of us needs to come back to God and respond to whatever he's laid on our hearts. And so that's what this time is for. It's going to be silent, individual prayer responding back to what God has just laid on our hearts. So we'll pray for a few moments silently and encourage you and challenge every one of you to go to God to reckon with what he just gave to you through his word. And then after we do that, we'll come back. We'll have an invitation time where anyone who needs to respond publicly to God's word can do so. Let's pray right now.